Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. And before the episode begins, I would just like to let you know that Be Scared, which is produced along with Studio 71, features scary stories from around the globe on a weekly basis that aim to fuel your nightmares with a smile. And if you enjoy the podcast, it would be great if you could hit that subscribe button and drop a review. Thanks for listening, guys. And without further ado, let's begin. In order for me to tell you about this, you're going to need to know a bit about Clint Rockwell first. Now, I've known him for around eight years. He was always strange, to say the least, but not in the sense that it made him an outcast. The opposite, actually. I guess, then, that strange wasn't the right word, in fact. But let's just call him exceptional. And if I were to give you a quick rundown of his life, it'd look something like this. Straight A's from primary to post-secondary, full rides to Ivy Leagues, internship offers out of his ass after just his undergraduate year, astonishingly charismatic and handsome. It was to the point where nobody even seemed to be bitter towards him, not jealous either. They just completely admired him. But despite all the parties that he was invited to, all the attempts at friendship, all the girls that threw themselves at him, he chose to be a loner. In fact, I was one of the only people that he talked to. I couldn't tell you why he chose me as an acquaintance, but he just did, and let me tell you, I was about as average as average gets, set for a life of just mundanity. It all started in the seventh grade, though. I just failed a geometry test, but to be fair, I didn't really study for it, but whatever. Clint was sitting right by me, and I saw him take a disaffected glance at his paper before putting it down. He got a hundred, of course. I guess that he saw me staring at him because he looked down at my paper and chuckled. It was slightly embarrassing, of course, but instead of hurling an insult, he asked me if I had wanted to come over after school and study, maybe play some video games. I agreed, and that's when I started to get a glimpse into his ideals. You see, he was never satisfied with anything. I remember our conversations regarding what he wanted to do in the future, I had all the generic answers, buy a Lamborghini, a big house in Hollywood, marry Megan Fox, yeah, I was that asshole. But Clint, he wanted something different. He had bigger aspirations. Adventure, he told me, going somewhere uncharted, discovering something new, you know, something that nobody's seen. At that time, I didn't know what he meant. What, like Jupiter or some shit? 
I asked him and he just chuckled. Well, maybe, something like that. At that time, I couldn't fathom why he would want to go into space. Nothing's up there though, I told him. What's the point? He just gave me an amused look, but it wasn't one of contentious superiority. He wasn't like that. He just knew that I couldn't have understood, but he didn't fault me for it. Well, think about it. People's lives have become lackluster, he went on. When we have all the comforts in the world, everything turns into structure, routine, nothing new. Our destiny decided by the time that we're out of college. And honestly, who the hell wants to get caught up in the rat race and just chase monotony day to day? That's the worst possible outcome. I mean, look, that's why we watch movies and read books, right? Escapism. Looking for stories that are infinitely more satisfying than the one that we're living in. I mean, what do we really have to look forward to? He talked a lot like this too, but it didn't sound suicidal or anything. It just was something else. This guy beyond was driven. I could see it. But to be honest, I couldn't tell you what he did in the long hours that he spent in his room alone. He never talked about it. By the time that he went off to Caltech and I went to Penn State, we started drifting apart too. In fact, after the first year of his master's degree, he just stopped talking to me completely. Stopped talking to anybody actually. When he didn't go home for spring break, his folks called the cops and apparently he just stopped going to class as well. They looked for him but there were no traces. It was a cold case just going nowhere. However, I do remember the last time that we had communicated. He'd sent me a Facebook message, and this is all that it said. Do you want to be a part of something? It's a project that I'm working on. I can explain more later. I'd sent him a message asking about specifics, but he never responded. And that was the last that I'd heard of him for about seven years. That is, before he knocked on my door in the middle of the night, some hours ago. I wasn't going to open at first, these kinds of stories never end well, but that's when I heard my name being called by a distantly familiar voice. I couldn't believe my ears at first, I stared through the peephole at what looked like a homeless man. He had dirty, tattered clothes, a massive beard and just generally an unkempt appearance. But I recognized those eyes instantly and I recognized that spark. It was Clint. I opened up and greeted him in disbelief, but before I could pelt him with questions, he stopped me. Look, don't freak out. I'll explain everything. Maybe just let me shower first though, okay? He flashed his award-winning smile at me, though his pearly whites weren't what they used to be. It's really good to see you, by the way, man. That's when I got closer to look at his frame. He was bigger than I'd remembered. Bulkier. It looked like he'd put on about 10 pounds of muscle. His model-like face was now weather-beaten and covered in scars. He also smelled of sweat and just grime. And that was absolutely insane to say the least. After he washed up and settled into a couch, he laid it all out. And now I'm going to tell you what he told me verbatim. So apparently during the latter half of his undergraduate year, he was approached by his physics professor, Joel Rust, a somewhat eccentric 42-year-old. But he was supposedly brilliant. Rust had chosen Clint specifically to partake in what he called a research project. He laughed when he told me about this too. Yeah, we, we had to call it that. 
he said. If they knew what we were really doing, the funding would have been gone for sure. There were 14 other people involved in this. Two theoretical physicists, three cosmologists, two young thrill-seekers, two ex-Navy SEALs, a discharged US soldier and archaeologist, a retired MMA fighter, a disgraced entrepreneur and a suicidal drifter Rust found trying to jump off a bridge. And yeah, it was a strange group for sure. But we all shared similar ideals, he explained. For one reason or another, we were all looking to get away from this world, looking for another frontier. Apparently, while on vacation, Rust had discovered something peculiar off a remote coast on the South Islands in New Zealand. Something over the Cook Strait. Rust explained that he'd been seeing some kind of strange thick fog that hung under the clouds. We didn't know what he meant by that, Clint stated. He never really explained it. For years, he'd spend his summers over there and observe it himself. He'd then spend every second of his free time analyzing his observations. And eventually, he'd enlisted the help of some cosmologists and other physicists. Clint looked at me, and it seemed as if he was having trouble holding in a huge grin. So, you know what the theory they came up to was? I shook my head. It was a passage to somewhere else, man. A different universe, so to speak. This floored me. I was skeptical for a second, but then I thought about who I was talking to and how strange this whole situation was. I just kept listening. I asked him how he'd figured that out. You want the details? He replied. I thought about it, and no, not really if I'm being honest. I mean, science was never really my strong point anyway. But he told me how Rust had started conducting experiments. He'd fly a drone into the fog whenever a storm was brewing. These were the only times when it was visible. He'd estimated that after it disappeared that there would be about a three minute window where he could control it. And after that, it was just gone forever. That's why he needed the funding, Clint explained. This shit was expensive, man. The culmination of all of these experiments and all this research was supposed to be a trip into the fog just to see what they could find. And that's when Rust started forming the team. It took a while, but he eventually gathered together people that he deemed would be fit for something like this, along with the other researchers involved. Yeah, he said that he chose me because of an essay that I wrote for class. The topic was about what the universe meant to us as individuals, Clint said. And I guess it just kind of spoke to him. I'm sure that he had other reasons as well. He smirked to himself. Now, while the ex-military and thrill-seekers were all in good shape, Rust and the researchers definitely weren't. Nobody knew what to expect, really. That's why we had to train. Cardio, strength, agility, the works. Nobody wanted to lag behind. Clint elaborated. After about three years, they deemed themselves ready to go. The big day was finally there, and on a warm spring day in California, and a particular choppy one on the South Islands, Rust, Clint, and the rest of the team piled into a private plane owned by the entrepreneur. They brought with them months' worth of rations and weapons, first aid kits, research equipment, parachutes as well, just in case. Everything that you could think of, really. Funnily enough, too, the drifter was the only person who knew how to pilot. And at that point... I remember thinking that this was just batshit crazy. Wait, I asked him. So you guys were just going to go through with this? Was nobody scared of what would happen? He just chuckled. 
Well, we have a bunch of insane researchers, soldiers scarred by combat, thrill-seekers, a suicidal guy even. And don't even get me started on myself, and you think that we gave a shit? No. I guess we weren't. As it turns out, they figured out what Russ was talking about when they got close to the thing. Apparently, the fog was dark grey, almost black. It was maybe a uh, hundred meters below the clouds, and it was massive. The strangest part, though, was that it didn't move at all, and you could clearly tell where it began and where it ended. Everybody braced themselves upon entering. They were suddenly submerged into darkness. Clint said that he could see the silhouette of anticipation on everybody's faces from the faint cabin lights. But after three minutes, the plane starts malfunctioning. And here's the fucked up part. Rust never actually told anybody about the drone experiments until afterwards. So, when this happened, everybody started freaking out. Nobody was expecting it, but soon after, a wave of light just filled the plane. And what they saw out of the windows was incomprehensible. A dark, foreboding landscape. Heavy rain pounded the windows like a cacophony of violent lightning bolts stuck around them. To make matters worse, the plane was headed down into a black ocean beneath. As they got closer, they could tell that there was definitely movement in the water. Large movements. And they weren't just waves. Luckily for them, the plane was also on a trajectory for a landmass up ahead. Nobody asked any questions. They just stuffed their bags with weapons, rations, and water before hastily strapping on their parachutes. And it was at this point where they realized military training would have come in handy. Right then, it was every man for themselves. Once the plane was nearly over the island, everybody started jumping out. A good portion of the team didn't get so lucky. Other than Rust, only one of the researchers survived. The two of them couldn't open their parachutes in time. One landed in the water where he was quickly consumed by something. And one got struck by lightning on the way down. The entrepreneur and one of the ex-seals also didn't make it, both landing rough on the rocky shoreline. And so the team was suddenly down to ten. They watched as the plane spiraled out of control into the murky sea. The fog was also still visible in the distance, just kind of hanging there. After they regrouped, they sat in silence for a while and nobody knew what to think. Russ' theory looked to be right, it seemed. The island itself was pretty similar to tropical ones that you would find here on Earth. Except for the trees were as tall as an apartment complex and the fact that the sky was always cloudy. They'd later find out that this place actually had a name too, Dusk Blue. Another peculiar thing too was that the lightning never seemed to strike land, only the ocean, which was good news for them. They started making their way into the jungle in front of them. With nowhere else to go, this was all that they could do. Amongst them, they'd managed to take six pistols, four machetes, an assault rifle and a shotgun. No reserve ammunition though. But they'd also concluded that they'd had about five days of food and water for all of them. As they made their way across the land, some creepy unexplainable shit just started happening. The MMA fighter, they called him Duke, went to go and piss in some bushes at one point. About 30 seconds later, he ran back to the group, freaking out and hyperventilating. Everybody tried to ask him what had happened. And that's when they looked at the clearing that he had come from. But Duke was standing right there with a blank expression plastered on his face. But he was also with them. 
Then, out of nowhere, his copy began sprinting backwards into the woods at a torrid pace. Another occurrence took place when they came across what looked like a, a void just floating in the air in front of them. It was literally a door-sized black shape that was just devoid of anything. One of the thrill-seekers, Jeff, stuck his hand to it for a few seconds before pulling it back. He could still move it, but it became just completely numb, and it stayed that way. Apparently, one night they woke up to the sound of shells blasting in the air. Lauren, the archaeologist, was shooting at something just a few meters away from where they were sleeping. Clint said that it was hard to describe, but something along the lines of a massive spider-human hybrid. The shotgun didn't affect it, it just kind of crawled away. Man, this sounds like a fucking nightmare. Is that what you wanted? I asked him. I was sincerely curious. I mean, yeah, this is exactly what I needed. His words sounded genuine. I guess it didn't matter that I couldn't understand him. He understood himself and he went on. Three days pass and they're still in the jungle. They didn't know where they were heading, but nobody wanted to admit it. Rust and the cosmologists continuously record their observations while everybody else is getting antsy. They were running out of food and the other thrill-seeker, Clint forgot his name, was starting to go delirious. They'd seen a small creature that vaguely resembled a chicken and he tried attacking it with a machete. Unfortunately, his throat was instantly slit upon making contact with it. Nobody went near any wildlife after that and it looked like hunting for food was just now out of the question. Urgency was setting in though and at night they'd started hearing horrific, just unrecognizable sounds all around them. One time they woke up to see a pale humanoid creature with no facial features sitting cross-legged just a few meters away. Suddenly, the skin on its head peeled back to reveal a singular monstrous-sized eye. It only needed to blink one more time before everybody got the hell out of there. They'd also come across a strange hole in the ground or something at one point. It was about the size of a basketball. The other ex-seal, name also forgotten, walked up to it to take a look. Cautiously, he peered into it. About a minute passes and he still hadn't moved. People started shouting at him to just leave it, but he ignored everything. They tried prying him away, but he didn't budge. He just stayed crouched, eyes blankly transfixed on the hole. And after about ten minutes, they just left him. Things were reaching a tipping point once the fifth day came. They were starving, sleep-deprived, and really paranoid. With only four MREs left for the eight of them, they needed to converse energy. However, every time they stopped to rest, they'd hear footsteps behind them. They'd look for the source, but there was nothing visible to be found. The steps would just get louder and louder. Eventually, they'd caught up, and Clint said that they could hear something running quick circles around them before he started to feel lightheaded. The last thing that he remembered before passing out was a barrage of shouts coming from somewhere in front of them, and none of them voices that he'd recognized. He awoke some time later, lying on a stiff mattress in a small wooden cabin. His head was pounding and his face was covered in dry blood when he touched it. He looked around the room, nearly jumping out of his skin when he saw somebody sharpening some kind of weapon in the corner. But he did look to be human, resembling a Mediterranean man almost. Upon seeing Clint awake, he'd got up and introduced himself as Slade. He also spoke English, albeit it was in a strange accent that Clint said that he'd never heard before. 
Now, Clint was no small guy at 6'1", but Slade still towered way over him. He explained that he was essentially a guard protecting a walled civilization called Pharaoh Locus, where Clint currently was. He described how he and the rest of the team had come into contact with what the locals referred to as stalkers. They'd eventually managed to fend them off, bringing Clint and the rest to safety. They were happy to let them stay as long as they did their fair share of work. He further explained the island that they were on too. As it turns out, Dusk Blue was actually one of the few places in that world that had a semblance of order and society. While most of it was extremely hostile, there were protected settlements set up all around where people could live in relative peace. However, the main attraction was at the center, a massive self-governing city-state known as Paradise X. But while settlements like Pharaoh Locus could be compared to small towns in the Old West, Paradise X was more comparable to a modern-day metropolis. He went on to explain a strange trend in births on the island in which around 1 in 1,000 children were born with enhanced levels of strength, speed, and nearly impenetrable skin. Officials from Paradise X would come around to settlements every now and then in order to recruit these children into the security force set to protect their borders. In exchange, their families would be allowed citizenship and a place to live within the city. Of course, everybody was after this, and this resulted in a lot of questionable moral decisions when it came to children. Clint then asked about all the stuff that had happened before they were rescued, all the weird stuff. Apparently Slade just sighed and told him not to worry about it. He didn't have the answers either, and that stuff's just always been there, and it was better not to think about it. He told him to simply stay inside the settlement and not cause any trouble, the punishment for disorderly conduct was actually exile. I was still trying to wrap my head around any of this when Clint started yawning. He told me that he was tired and that we could talk in the morning. I tried to get him to stay up and tell me more, but his eyes were already half closed. I've gone through some just messed up shit, man. Just uh, let me rest for a bit. Don't worry, I've got more to tell you. I mean, I spent seven years over there for fuck's sake, he said drowsily. Yeah, uh, that's fine. Uh, you can take the guest room if you'd like, I told him. After feeding him some leftover spaghetti, I let him up there. But I had to ask him one more thing before he passed out, though. But what about your folks, though, man? How the hell are you going to explain this to them? He paused for a second before speaking. Uh... To be honest, I couldn't if I tried. They're, they're gone, man. The lack of emotion in his voice kind of disturbed me a bit. Oh, shit. I'm, I'm really sorry, man, was all that I could utter out. He just let out a forced chuckle and said, What are you sorry for? You didn't do anything. Before disappearing into the bedroom. That was when I really thought about what had just happened. If Clint's been telling me the truth, then that's horrifying to think about. I guess that uh, I'll share some more with you guys when he wakes up. Stay tuned. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now 
All you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Apartments.com believes that a dishwasher does more than just clean plates. It turns your whole place into a time machine by turning the time that you would have spent washing dishes into extra time for you. That could mean more time to read, more time to knit, or more time to contemplate the vastness of time itself. With Apartments.com, finding somewhere to live with an elusive dishwashing slash time-expanding device is easy. Apartments.com hosts the most rental listings with over 1 million available units. And with comprehensive search tools and instant alerts, you never have to worry about missing out on the perfect place. To find whatever you're searching for and more, visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. So, it's currently morning, and I didn't expect to get much sleep last night, and I didn't. But we just uh, picked up some breakfast. Clint's been eating like just an animal. Guess I can't blame him, though. But I don't want to get off topic too much. He followed up by describing a rough layout of the world beyond that island. But by his account, oceans made up about 85% of the surface... There were only two continents, well, there used to be three apparently, but one was essentially annihilated and made unavailable by a previous world war, but there were also islands scattered throughout, ones like Dusk Blue. The two remaining continents were known as Neo Civitus and Heaven's Curse. I'll discuss the latter first. So Clint estimated that he'd spent around two months there, but that's another story. And to put it simply, it resembled an apocalyptic shit show with the vast majority of it being a deserted wasteland. Yeah man, if you thought Dusk Blue sounded bad, this shit was something else entirely, Clint explained. Apparently the life expectancy for children born there was around 6 human years. The places where people lived ranged from lawless zones controlled by warlords to totalitarian fortresses and everything in between. It had a total population of 17 billion living in an area about um, twice the size of Russia, and those were only what we would consider to be humans. The place was also filled with some of the most incomprehensibly horrific things that he'd ever seen. Any place that wasn't occupied by a majority of humans was simply referred to as oblivion. If you went out into those places alone, you weren't going to last long. Now, the creatures that dwelled within oblivion were a bit tough to explain. Clint's experiences with them were limited. However, he'd heard that people had stopped trying to label them all, but there were simply just too many. But he did tell me about some of the more infamous ones. So first, there were the Harbringers. These were giant winged monstrosities with sharp spikes protruding out of every inch of their body. You could barely see their skin and even the heads were mostly covered. But these things were just massive and about the size of a large shuttle bus. It was rumored that the spikes coming out of their skin put them in constant agonizing pain. And because of this, they were in a constant state of rage, slaughtering anything that moved. They were called Harbringers because whenever one arrived, many others were definitely soon to follow. 
That meant unavoidable mass-scale death and destruction. These things were not easy to kill and people had to prepare for them. But then there were the Butcher Knights. Nobody really knows what these are. A theory floating around was that they were members of an ancient order of knights that had been condemned by some otherworldly being. They were now forced to roam heaven's curse for eternity, searching for human flesh to eat. Yes, they ate people. In appearance, they were about some ten-foot-tall humanoids covered head-to-toe in crude black armor, resembling that of a traditional knight. Upon close inspection, it almost seemed as if the armor was welded to their skin, which appeared to be rotting. They'd attack humans' outposts with extremely large rusted spikes and pikes and axes. If the initial blow didn't kill you, the ensuing infection sure would. Fighting them one-on-one -on -one definitely wasn't an option as they could easily overpower multiple humans at once. Steam cannons had to be used to take them out. The Weeping Infernos, these were also humanoid in nature, despite being always covered in fire. They rode on top of unidentifiable creatures. They almost looked like horses, except for the fact that they had six legs and ran at ludicrous speeds. It's unclear if the riders are physically attached to the creatures as they seem to have their own legs, but they've never been seen to dismount, so nobody really knows. The way that they kill is actually not what you think as well. While the constant stream of flames that burst out of their bodies was certainly a cause for concern, a bigger problem was their persistent, ungodly shrieks. If you get too close to them, your brain would just eventually explode. And that was where they got their names from. And then, the hunter. This was a rare one. People were unsure if there was only one of these, or if there were more. This stems from the fact that it only ever appeared by itself, but that didn't mean it was easy to deal with. Supposedly, this thing was seemingly indestructible, until proven otherwise, that is. But so far, nobody's made a dent in it. However, it was only really pursuing one thing the strongest entity in the surrounding area. Somehow, it could just sense them. That meant that the more settlements would try to protect their most capable fighters, the more people would die when the hunter tried to get to them. Eventually, communities would just give them up and hand them over whenever it came around. They'd fight each other and the hunter would always win. Most reports of its appearance have been falsified since so little people have actually seen it. However, the most agreed upon one was being more than triple the size of a butcher knight. It had no legs, but about 12 arms that it used to attack and move. Its hands were large, covered in a caustic liquid, and could grab a human, simultaneously crushing and dissolving them in seconds. It also apparently had no face, just a large mouth filled with sharp black teeth on its torso. Ultimately, these only scratched the surface. Heaven's curse was like the ocean, mostly unexplored and the vast majority of creatures dwelling within it still undiscovered. This was probably good. However, these weren't the only things that the inhabitants had to worry about. There was also a perplexing phenomenon that seemed to plague everybody who lived there. Nobody could explain it away and nobody could identify the source. And nobody even knew what to call it. They just accepted it. A good parallel for this in our reality could be the glitches in the Matrix some people experience at times. On Heaven's Curse, you could simply be walking around before getting disorientated for a second. When you come to your senses, you'd find yourself standing outside the civilization that you were just in. That is, out in oblivion. 
People also claimed to see things that just weren't there, hear things that didn't have a source, and be having conversations before realizing that there was nobody in front of them. One of the most extreme cases were times where everybody around you would just stop in place, have all their heads twist to look directly at you, and, and then their lips would stretch ear to ear in the most horrific grin that you'd ever seen. After a couple of seconds, everything would just go back to normal. Nobody would say that they'd ever remember doing so, and this happened to Clint once. You may be wondering how there could still be a constant population of 17 billion considering all of this. Well, there was one thing that people living there didn't have to worry about. That was sustenance. Now, Clint admitted that the food that they'd eat wasn't very good, but it was abundant. The bark on trees were nutritionally dense, rain came regularly and didn't have to be boiled to drink, and various, albeit strange-looking root vegetables could be grown almost everywhere, with shortages pretty much being unheard of. Additionally, these medium-sized insects called salvators were rampant just everywhere. But they were never a nuisance and never seemed to spread disease and, if cooked, could be used as a great source of protein. And that's why there were so many people, you see. Children were being bred at a torrid rate, emotional connection to your offspring wasn't really a thing and the ones that survived attacks by the oblivion creatures would be trained to deal with subsequent assaults. Since food wasn't an issue, the more there were, the better chances a settlement would survive. However, the population always seemed to even itself out almost. The climate was also favorable. While the north and south ends of the continent had extreme temperatures, nobody really lived there. In fact, nobody knows what lives there. But the rest of it could probably be compared to maybe Australia. Pretty hot, but still livable. There were also no seasons, and the sky was perpetually covered in what looked like an orange haze, so sunburn wasn't really an issue. With that said, though, everybody still wanted to get the hell out of there. But the quality of life was still absolute shit. They all wanted to reach Neo Civitas, which they nicknamed Heaven's Promise, and that was pretty much impossible, given the fact that they were separated by as much ocean as the geography would allow. Now, Clint had never actually been inside Neocivitus. He'd only heard about it and read descriptions. Supposedly, it was only a tenth of the size of Heaven's Curse, and it was named after the only city on the entire continent. Clint said that a physical description of the place would be akin to Manhattan on steroids, a megacity that was host to a population of 275 million. It was a continuous stretch of brilliant buildings and skyscrapers that lit up the night. It was also a functioning society. People had jobs, could start families, and could engage in recreational activities, and nobody had to worry about anything beyond shit like taxes and public opinion. Yeah, I know. It sounded like the rat race all over again, right? Clint exclaimed. But while the area outside the city limits was still somewhat hostile, it was nowhere near the extent of Heaven's Curse or anywhere else for that matter. Besides, there was a monumental metal-based wall about 400 meters tall surrounding the entire place. There were also heavily armed military personnel called Apex officers guarding it. In fact, a lot of it was comprised of the enhanced soldiers guarding Paradise X. But these two places actually had an agreement where a portion of the ex-soldiers would be flown from Dusk Blue to Neo Civitas in exchange for firearms. And yes, they were the only ones who had access to the air travel. They were also widely believed to be the sole producers of guns and ammunition. Resources like that were pretty scarce in this world, and most of them were on Neo Civitas. 
The few other resource-rich islands around the world were essentially picked dry by recon teams sent by the government. This was that world's only superpower. They called the shots and went unopposed in pretty much doing anything. However, there was one thing that they did have to worry about. You see, there was one thing that Neo Civitas had in common with everywhere else. The sky. It was always cloudy and nobody could ever really come up with a tangible explanation as to why that was. It was just always like that. Well, that's just what people think, Clint remarked quickly. Strangely, he didn't elaborate on that. And that's when I really noticed how weird he'd been acting the whole time that he'd been telling me this. There was a, an increasing urgency in his tone. Anyhow, he went on and apparently there was a legend of sorts that had permeated every community all around the world. When the day comes where the clouds finally part, true Armageddon will soon come to fruition and nobody could stop it. I'd been so caught up in this that I'd completely forgotten that I actually had work that day. My boss had texted me in the morning telling me that I had to come in later, just for a few hours. I was already late. Oh, shit, I told Clint. Look, man, I gotta run to work quickly. Uh, just stay here, alright? Don't go anywhere. I'll bring back some pizza or something, alright? He responded almost instantly. Yeah, do what you gotta do, man. I'll be here. He said this in the same urgent tone that he'd been using before. However, I didn't think too much of it. I'm uh, currently at work now, but I can't focus on anything. There was still just too many things that Clint had just left unexplained. Update. Uh, guys, I just came back and he's gone. I must admit that I somewhat expected this. It seems like he took a bunch of perishable rations, a few sets of my clothes, a laptop and some cash. However, I did find something on the kitchen counter. It was a, an old crusty journal covered in dirt and bloodstains. There was also a sticky note attached to it and this is what it said. I'm sorry James, you've always been of the few people that I could actually bear talking to. Maybe you'll understand eventually. This journal should answer some of your questions that you still have. In the meantime, there's something that I need to do. Bye for now, Clint. P.S. I'll pay you back sometime. You know I will. I smiled at that because, honestly, it was true. He'd always kept his word, and deep down, I knew that his stay here wasn't going to last long. He just wasn't that kind of guy, and whatever he's doing, I hope he succeeds. In the meantime, it looks like I'm going to have some reading to do. Let's see what this is all really about then. Hey again guys. So, my posts may become a bit more sporadic. Work's got me on my heels and you know how it is. Anyhow, as much as I want answers, I, I also need to eat. I've started reading the journal, and I'll list the names of the people Clint arrived with before I start to type it out. The ones who were still alive at the beginning of the first entry, that is. Just to make it less confusing. So, there was Clint and Rust, of course. And then Duke, the MMA fighter. Lauren, the archaeologist. Travis, the drifter. Christian, discharge soldier. Hawkins, cosmologist. And Karganori, the thrill seeker. 
And so, here we go. Entry 1. I thought I'd write down my thoughts as well as any significant events while I'm here. Now, I'm not sure who this is for or who's even going to read it, but I might as well do this. My name is Clint Rockwell and I'm currently in some strange world that isn't even Earth. How'd I get here? Well, there's a bit too much to explain here. But we've been on Dusk Blue, the island where we first landed on, for around two months now. That is assuming that time passes the same here as it does on Earth. And I think it might, or close enough anyways. Hawkins estimates the time between days here is around 23 hours and 48 minutes. I shit you not, the guy just sat there and counted the seconds one day. He's uh, pretty much gone crazy at this point as well. Can't really blame him though. This must be fucking insane for him. But besides that, everybody's been pretty nice around here and all seem to be genuinely good people. But once you get past the cultural differences, that is. Apparently a handshake here means war. Weird, I know. But, I don't know. Maybe there's something wrong with me because for the first week I was amazed by this place. But after that, shit just kind of fell into a routine again. The satisfaction that came from making this discovery has been dwindling. It's just uh, day after day of manual labor, eating gruel and sitting around, and the thing I didn't realize was that nobody ever goes outside this place unless they deem it to be a direct threat worth intervening in. Hell, the only reason they bothered saving us was because we were leading the stalkers directly to them. There's just really nothing to do here. However, the stories I hear from the elders were pretty interesting, I must admit. For example, some time ago, they found a dead body lying just outside of the settlement walls. Not wanting it to stink up the place, some guys carried it away and threw it into some foliage. That night, they heard somebody yelling it around the same place that they found the body. But when they checked it out, it was the same dead guy from earlier. Except he was alive and didn't have a scratch on him. They didn't let him in, obviously. You see, while shit like this would encourage most people to stay within the safer confines of the settlement, it just didn't have that same effect on me. Shit like this made me want to get out there, made me want to go and explore. I realized that we almost died on the way here, but we were also unprepared. With people who know their way around, it could work out, you know? I mean, you can't wave a piece of meat in front of a lion and expect to stay in its cage. Alright, that was dumb as hell and I wish I didn't write that down, but I don't have an eraser right now, so I guess that that's staying in. Maybe I'll figure something out. Entry 2 An opportunity arose just now. One of the guards here, Grillo, approached me yesterday. Apparently a convoy from Paradise X is coming around tomorrow to pick up any enhanced children. Now, there aren't any here actually, but this was his plan. As soon as they came, we would tell them that we had some. We would lead them into one of the cabins and ambush them inside, while somebody else took out the drivers. I asked him how the hell we were going to do that since they had guns. Yeah, but we do too, he responded with a toothy grin. That's when I realized that we did, didn't we? Apparently Paradise X goes off of the assumption that nobody at any settlement possesses firearms since gunpowder is pretty much unavailable on the whole island. The only reason that Paradise X has them is because of a trade deal that they do with some other place or something. 
Now, I have never done something like this, and I don't know if I really feel comfortable doing it, but this seems like the only way that I'm going to get out of here. Still, I'm not going to kill anybody. Grillo also told me not to tell Slade, as it wouldn't go down well with him because of uh, past incidences, apparently. Entry 3. So Grillo and I have seemed to have worked this out. He's got two other guards in on this, and I've convinced Duke, Christian, and Kaganori. It didn't take much. They were all itching to get out of here as well. However, Laurent wasn't so sure about it. Maybe she'll come around eventually. Russ said fuck no when I brought it up, and I'm pretty sure Hawkins is actually going insane because he just ignored everything I said. As for Travis... Well, he actually seems really happy here. I saw him smile for the first time when a little girl made him a wooden necklace, so I'm just not going to bother him. All I know is that this is happening, and no matter the outcome, at least I've done something that few others have. Entry 4 I, uh, I don't know if we could gauge what just happened as a success, but still, I came out pretty much unscathed. As for my no-kill rule, well, those Paradise X motherfuckers were horrendous. As soon as they arrived in their three-vehicle convoy, they started causing shit. Some of them started taunting the townsfolk while others swept the cabins. I counted nine of them in total. I think it hit a boiling point when one of them started groping a woman. And that's when everything just went to shit. I understand why Grillo was so adamant now that we do this. He was holding in some pent-up rage for sure, and when he saw this, he just stormed out of the cabin where we were going to hold the ambush and shot the guy down who really was not expecting it. He took out two more before rushing back in, sporting a nasty bullet wound on his thigh. I'm really not sure why he was so good at aiming if he'd never held a gun before, but what happened next went by real quick. In a life or death situation, all reservations you had about morality just go out the window. I took shooting lessons as part of my training beforehand, so I managed to take out a few of them myself. I didn't feel anything when I did so. Things were looking pretty good until Christian blasted one of the soldiers point blank with the shotgun. And he barely flinched, because he was enhanced. I remember Grillo shouting fucking hell and he had told us that there was no chance that they sent one of them with the convoy, that they were too important. Well, that was bullshit, wasn't it? The guy went on a complete rampage, picking people up and slamming them on the ground. Every punch that he threw was fatal. Slade had come out at one point to challenge him but was dismantled easily. I saw him give a look of somber disappointment at Grillo before going limp. The whole plan was going downhill until Rust approached and shouted at the guy, Come here, you fucking pussy, was all that he said. I had no idea what his plan was, that is, until he took out a grenade. I guess that he'd been holding that, and he took the pin off, chucked it at the guy, and watched as it bounced off of him. I guess Paradise X didn't use grenades because the guy just scoffed and started running towards Rust. At this point, Christian had already silently been gesturing everybody away from the whole situation. The grenade exploded right as the guy was stepping over it, and everything just fell silent for a while. And that was when we heard the groaning, because he was still alive somehow. 
but he seemed to be incapacitated, and a bunch of guys followed up by tossing him out of the settlement walls. I guess all that commotion had attracted something in the jungle because we heard screaming soon after it. After that, we stayed around to help for a little while, rebuilding and tending to any injuries. It was the least we could do. I had to thank Russ for what he did. I mean, the guy really had balls. But when I did it, he just looked at me like I was insane. It was a fair judgment in retrospect, I suppose. He told me. That was reckless, kid. I just nodded and asked him if he'd changed his mind about coming with us. I doubted it, but it was worth a shot. He looked around the village for a second before sighing and shaking his head. Uh, no, no, I, I got some work to do, kid, and I don't think I'll be able to get it done wherever you're going. He patted me on the shoulder before walking away. Good luck, though. I hope you find what you're looking for. Now, I don't know why, but that sentence just filled me with a sense of melancholy. I guess it got me wondering what that really was. What was I actually after in the end? Maybe I'm not so sure yet, but that was just more reason to go and find out. Before we left, I watched Travis consoling a group of children. I'm really not so sure if us landing on the island did any good for this place. Everybody seems, uh, well, scared now. More than before, in fact, but whatever. There's no changing it now, right? We checked out the vehicles after... I'm not really sure what kind they were, I guess I wouldn't have known anyways, but it sort of resembled a, an armoured lifted jeep. Eventually, we figured out how to get them going, and at this point, it was me, Grillo, Christian, Duke, Kaganori, another guard named Novex, and Lauren. She changed her mind in the end. It could have been for a lot of reasons, but she didn't tell me. Uh, let's just go was all that she said to me when I inquired about it. We're all following Grillo now because apparently he knows where to go. He also stated that he had a plan once we get there, but there was an obvious hint of doubt wavering in his voice when he claimed this. So we'll see what happens, I suppose. This is how far I've gotten up to now, and I'm not really sure what to make of this, guys, but my perception of Clint Rockwell sure has been dynamic. I just really don't know what to make of this guy anymore, but I'll post again when I can, but bye for now. Hey guys, so uh, sorry for the wait, but let's just cut to the chase. This is what Clint wrote next. Entry 5. I'm not sure what the hell's going on right now. I'm at the back of the convoy with Lauren and Kaganori, who's at the wheel... We were driving fine. Before we left, Grillo had told us not to look at anything outside the vehicle and especially not to fire off any shots. There was a 90% chance that it wouldn't kill anything and I almost broke that rule when I caught a glimpse of something pressed against the window right outside of me. It had pale skin and a wide open mouth that covered half of its face. I just shuddered and ignored it. I mean, everybody else seemed to have the same idea. That was a while ago, but Grillo has stopped completely and nobody knows why. You see, the road, if you can even call it that, is extremely narrow and he's blocking everything in front of us. I mean, fuck, maybe he'll get going soon, but being out here at night, that's probably not a good idea. 
I swear too that it's been at least 10 minutes and he still hasn't moved an inch. Kaganori's getting pissed. He wants to go and see what's going on. Lawrence trying to convince him that it won't end well, since Grillo hasn't even stepped out, but he seems pretty adamant. To be honest, I'm close to going out to checking it out myself. Shit. Duke just came out in front of us holding a rifle. He's walking towards something in front of where Grillo stopped. He's yelling at it now. He sounds pissed too. What the hell is going on? Now he's raised the weapon. Grillo just stepped out and tackled him to the ground. They're wrestling now. Kaganori's run out to see what's going on. I need to know as well. I'll write down what happens later. Entry 6. Well, that was totally fucked up. I got there just in time to witness Duke putting Grillo into a rear naked choke. While I was gasping for air, Duke got up and started shouting again. Grillo was begging for us to stop him between labored breaths, and that's when I saw what was in front of the vehicle. It was Duke's copy, the one that we'd seen during the first days that we landed on the island, although maybe it wasn't the same one. Duke was hysterical. He screamed at it, what the fuck do you want from me? His copy just stood there, staring at him blankly, almost taunting him. Don't let him touch it, Grillo shouted at us from behind. I didn't know what to do in that moment, neither did Kaganori. I could see Novex running up from behind us, but he seemed hesitant to do anything. We just remained passive observers. The Duke was starting to get close to the thing though, very close, and it looked as if he was about to throw a punch any second. I turned to see Grillo fishing a pistol out of the vehicle. What the hell are you doing? I asked him. He didn't respond. Instead, he just pointed the gun directly at Duke. Don't fucking do it! He pleaded. Duke just ignored everything. And that's when he raised a fist. Grillo got the shot off just in time, and Duke's blood splattered everywhere as he fell to the ground. Nobody moved after that. We all just stared in anticipation, waiting for his copy's next move. I saw Kaganori slowly inching his way back to the vehicle. The thing stayed put, though. It just stared at Duke's body. But its facial expression was different. It almost looked disappointed. That's when its body started changing. It was hard to explain. I just remember it looking surreal. Its skin seemed to be bubbling and it was growing taller. Eventually it started walking away backwards at the speed that no human should be able to move at. As soon as it was out of sight, Grillo screamed at us to get back in our vehicles and we obliged pretty quickly. That's where we are now, driving again. Lauren's asking us what just happened but I don't really feel like reliving it. Kaganori hasn't said a word and I'll uh, ask Grillo about it later, I guess. Entry 7 We've finally stopped near a clearing. Grillo's gotten out of the vehicle and is signaling for us to do the same. Couldn't tell you how long it's been, but I know that I'm cramping up a bit here, so I'm grateful. I eventually told Lauren what he had saw, but she had no response to it. She's just been staring at her lap. I'm not really sure why we weren't driving anymore, but I definitely see lights in the distance. We must be going the rest of the way on foot, I guess. I'm going to talk to Grillo now and see what he says. Alright, so it seems that he doesn't know much about it either. He's only been told what to do upon direct encounters with it. 
Apparently, the number one rule is that you cannot initiate contact with it under any circumstances. As long as you're in its peripheral view, it can imitate your appearance perfectly. It'll also never attack you, given that you don't actually touch it first or take any action that may harm it, like running it over. You're supposed to just apparently walk away from it. I asked him what was supposed to happen once you touched it, and his response was short and cryptic. He said, that sets it free, we can't have that. I tried asking him what the hell that was supposed to mean, but he just changed the subject. We gotta walk the rest of the way, he said. We can't pull up in the convoy, grab all the weapons. This was disconcerting to say the least, but it looked like I wasn't getting any further answers out of him, so I just did what he told me to. We started heading towards the clearing. Through the brush, we could see the outer limits of the city. There was a, a huge wall, looked like stone, spanning the place. There was also a large gate surrounded by guards. I could also see some buildings peeking out from the top. I'd nearly forgotten the sound of everyday city hustle at this point. This was a glimpse back into the old world, if anything. And that was when Grillo dropped the bomb on us. He had no fucking plan. Apparently, he actually used to be a guard for Paradise X. However, he got kicked out for reporting the rampant misconduct his co-workers participated in. Yeah, it looks like this place was beyond corrupt. The other guards would beat, harass, and rape their way all around the city with no accountability. And he just got sick of it. And apparently, he only came here for revenge. He was about to kill as many of them as he could before they stopped him. I never had guns before. He said with a twisted grin. They won't see it coming. Look, Grillo's a good guy, but this... This is madness. He told us that we could go back, that he wouldn't hold it against us. The problem was, we had no idea how to get back to the settlement. Novex had a similar story to Grillo. He sure as hell wasn't helping us either. And well, it looks like we could either try and brave it in the shit show of a jungle, or hope for the best in the city. This is looking bleak either way. I'm listening to Grillo and Novex discuss the plan of action right now. Everybody else looks horrified. Kaganori's got his face buried in his hands. Christian is praying near a tree and I think that I saw a tear roll down Lauren's eye. But I just seem to feel nothing. In fact, now that I think about it, I'm actually kind of excited. Is this just blatant denial of my situation or am I actually going insane? Who the fuck knows? The best thing I can do right now though is focusing on not getting shot. Apparently they don't use the enhanced guards outside the walls. Again, they were just too important. However, it's obvious that Grillo doesn't always know what he's talking about. All we can do, I suppose, is hope for the best. The plan itself was simple. Novex would put on a Paradise X uniform that he took from the convoy and walk towards the guards. If he didn't immediately get shot down, he'd open fire, and that's when the rest of us would come in. With all the attention on him, we'd take care of the others, and after that, we'd use the guards' key to unlock the gate and wreak further havoc. Now, I'm not planning on simply walking around and slaughtering random guards. I wouldn't last a minute that way. I'll just hide somewhere, let it cool off and explore the city. After that, 
well, who knows? It's not like I have much time to think right now anyways, because Grillo's counting down already, and he has got nine fingers up. Eight, then seven. Fucking hell. Entry eight. So, I don't know how I keep getting so lucky, but I got skimmed by two bullets, but that was it. I'm a... I'm hiding behind a dumpster in an alley right now with Christian and Lauren. I don't know where Kaganori is, but I know that Novex was shot dead by the guards as soon as he walked out there. We managed to get rid of the rest of them while they were busy with him. I remember seeing Grillo take a bullet to the shoulder, a Kaganori in the thigh, and one destroyed Christian's ear, but this time, Grillo was actually right. None of those damn super soldiers were there, but we were also pretty much out of ammo. It didn't take long before we heard shouting coming from inside the walls, and after we unlocked the gates, we were met with a large statue of some dude with a hook for a hand or something. A bunch of civilians were starting to stare at us as well, and, well, here's the thing. I expected the quality of life in Paradise X to at least be decent, but it looked horrendous. Everybody had bags under their eyes, and their tattered clothes just barely hung onto their skinny frames. They all looked like disconnected zombies. The city itself looked like a post-nuclear Gotham or something. There were tons of skyscrapers, but they were foreboding and really dirty. There were destitute buildings lining the place, and every street seemed to be cracked. It was filled with what I assumed to be roving police squads, and the amount of people sleeping on the sidewalks was both astonishing and disturbing at the same time. I swear that I saw some dude getting the shit kicked out of him in plain view of everybody, and nobody intervened, not even the police. But that's probably because they're running towards us, right? However, they didn't have guns either, only what looked like batons and knives. That's when Grillo just went all out. He emptied the last clip of the rifle into a cluster of police before using it as a melee weapon. He was hurling loud, aggressive expletives at them while he did this. Man, he really hated this place, didn't he? I needed to get the hell out of there, though. The last I saw of Grillo was him getting picked up and tossed into a windshield by an enhanced. I ran away from that whole situation until I was about to pass out. Civilians kept looking at us, but they didn't seem to give a shit. And at this point, I still had three bullets left. I looked back to see Christian and Lauren not far behind. They also looked to be on the verge of puking. I didn't see where Kaganori went. And that's where we are now, hiding behind this filthy dumpster trying to catch our breath. I don't know what we're going to do next. I don't know what we're going to do at all, in fact. I've also killed just so many people, but I, I don't really mind if... I'm being honest. Entry 9. Shit. A couple of cops are walking by us right now. We decided to hide directly in the dumpster just to play it safe. My eyes are watering and Lauren just silently gagged. It smells like nothing I've ever experienced before. I'm not sure what I can do. I have a gun and they don't, I suppose. I, I could probably jump out and force them to give up their weapons. Maybe I will, but... Wait... I just noticed that one of the cops has a tattoo on his arm. Could could it be? Holy shit. It is. It's the Chicago Cubs logo. Which means that this motherfucker's from Earth. Entry 10. So, some interesting developments have just occurred. 
but whether they're good or not is left to be decided. I guess my adrenaline was spiked the fuck up because I decided to jump out of that dumpster, gun raised. As soon as I did, both cops rushed me. They saw that I was armed for sure, but I guess they just didn't care. I shot the guy with the tattoo before being taken out by the other one. I took a couple of baton blows to the ribs before he was restrained by Christian. He groaned, shouting at me in short guttural bursts. Kill me, you fuck. I don't care. I told him to calm the hell down, and then I laid it all out to him. I told him where we came from, that we were from Earth. His expression seemed to change drastically after that, and he was listening intently. What happened to you, huh? How'd you get here? Christian eventually asked. As it turns out, he was a German-American named Kunz Steiner. He used to be a part of the 82nd Airborne Division of the U.S. Army. And one day, on a mission to Iraq, some strange shit happened. The same shit that happened to us. Yeah, it was a cloudy day, he explained. One second, we were up in the air. And well, you know the rest. Only five of us actually made it into the islands. And I was the only one who made it to this fucking place. Apparently, he killed all of the guards who were outside the walls at the time. I was completely running on fumes, he said. I didn't even know what the hell I was doing. I guess my uh, primal instincts just kicked in. He had also realized that bullets didn't do a whole lot against the jungle creatures, so he still had plenty of ammunition at that point. When the backup came, they just wanted to get rid of him at first. But then they realized that he could be a valuable asset. They just lost like 10 fucking guards or something, he recalled. I guess they thought taking me in and turning me into one of them wasn't so bad of an idea after all, so that's what they did. And I've been here ever since. I can't tell you how many times I've just thought about offing myself. He continued. Nobody should have to live in a place like this. His voice started quivering. But I I always knew that something could happen. And now you guys are here. I was a bit taken aback by this. I mean, what the hell was he expecting us to do? So I asked him about it. Well, surely one of you knows how to pilot, right? Unfortunately, I don't. I thought about it. I mean, Travis was still back at the settlement. I asked him how the hell that that was going to help regardless, and he looked around for a bit. That was when we all heard the distant sound of boots stomping on concrete headed our way. Look, just come back to my place first. I'll tell you about it there. So, that's where we went, and that's where I am right now. You'd think that somebody as important as law enforcement here would get better living conditions. I mean, this place is beyond a shithole. It's on the fifth floor of some dilapidated building that feels like it's going to go down any second now. Apparently, Kunz only gets an hour of running water a day, and there's no air conditioning. 90% of his meals consisted of these stiff brown energy bars. He gave us some and I almost puked when I saw something blinking back at me after I'd taken a bite. But this was his plan. He'd sneak us out of this place and we'd go back to the settlement. Kunz knew how to get there in order to pick up Travis who would steer. Apparently the controls were similar enough to that of Earth's. And after that, we'd go back to Paradise X, break into one of the hangars where they stored the aircrafts, and fly out of there in search of the fog again. In search of the way back. Obviously, there was about a billion things that could go wrong with this. 
First of all, there were apparently only four small planes in that entire hangar and it was heavily guarded, but he had a solution to that. He knew about 15 other guards who also wanted out of this place. That should be enough to break into the hangar, Kun stated. Over the years, me had told them about what Earth was like, and it fascinated them. Why they didn't just disregard him as crazy was simple. They were desperate for something else, anywhere else. Everybody thought about doing it before, but nobody knew how to fly. So this would be a golden opportunity for them. I thought about the guards that we had encountered earlier. None of them did seem to care whether they died or not, but there was also Travis. There was no way in hell that he would come with us. He actually seemed to like it here, in fact, and as crazy as it is, I can't see him willingly going back. And then there was the biggest problem. What if there was no fog to be found? I mean, were we just going to drift around in the sky until our fuel ran out? I ran this by Kunz and he sighed. Honestly, anywhere is better than here, man. If you have to land somewhere else, then so be it. I'm not staying in whatever the fuck this place is anymore. His tone was dead serious and expression unwavering. He was 100% committed to this and I told him that we'd do it. Christian and Lauren didn't have any objections. I guess that I'd also had my fill of this island. However, I really don't think that we're going to find the fog again. And deep down, I know Kunz doesn't either. This is just a coping mechanism for him and this is all he's got. It's currently morning, but we're going to leave at night. Easier to sneak out that way. I have to say, too, that I'm still excited. I know I shouldn't be, but I am. We aren't going back to Earth, I know that. There's just no way. Entry 11. So it's finally dark out, and we're going for it. Kun says that there's a hidden tunnel that we can take that'll lead us all out of here. But there's also a vehicle waiting for us, which one of the other guards has set up. Entry 12. We're driving back to the settlement now. Fortunately for us, this vehicle has blinds on the passenger windows. I decided that this would be a good time to ask Kunt some more questions about Paradise X as well. As it turns out, the place is a sort of a combination between a dictatorship and anarchy. There is technically somebody who runs and has power over everything, but they call him the Pioneer. It's ironic too because he had absolutely no contribution in discovering the place. Now, this guy, um, he can make any laws that he wants, basically, but he doesn't. He just leaves the cesspool of a city to fester in its own waste. That's right, there were no actual rules against murder or anything for that matter. The only real laws were that you couldn't attack the law enforcement, which was broken on an hourly basis, and that you couldn't step foot on the pioneer's personal property, where he and the ones close to him lived in relative luxury. This, though, was a big deal. The punishment was supposedly worse than death, and the only reason he sent out police at all were to monitor for any creatures that looked past the wall. This wasn't uncommon, apparently. If they saw any, the regular police would notify what was known as the command operatives to come and get rid of them, which was mainly comprised of the enhanced guards. After that, I asked about the copies. I could see him become visibly paler at the mention of them. He didn't know too much about them either. He'd never seen one. In fact, nobody around him had come to the consensus on what they really were. Just don't touch them, he said. Simple as that. I asked him what would happen if he did. I mean, maybe he'd have a better answer than Grillo. 
Well, you know how they can take your form just by looking at you? He responded. The thing is, is that when it's just staring at you, it's merely a hollow shell of yourself, but once you've made contact with it, you're essentially giving it permission to become you. And you know, two are the same person, they just can't exist at once, so after that, you're gone. I still didn't understand what the hell that was supposed to mean. I pressed him for some more answers, but he just left it at that. Nobody seemed to want to talk about these things. Entry 13. The rest of the drive was pretty uneventful, but when we reached the settlement, it's really hard to say what happened, but a massacre obviously occurred. There were abnormally large claw marks scraped into the sides of the cabins and bodies were haphazardly scattered just everywhere. I tried not to look because, well, there were kids. We searched the place though for a while, but we didn't find any survivors. Eventually, Christian went back to praying and Lauren just started bawling. I was horrifically transfixed by the whole scene. I don't know what to think anymore and eventually we found Travis's upper body. Safe to say, the plan wasn't going to work. Kunz cursed loudly and started pacing. I heard him mumbling. This can't happen. I have to do this. Fuck. I can't stay here. At that point, I echoed his sentiments pretty closely. We really needed to get the hell off this island, but I never found any trace of rust. His body wasn't among the dead, and I did find his journal, or what was left of it. Most pages were torn apart, and the rest were simply indecipherable. I tried to analyze it, but it was just like reading ramblings from a madman. However, I did find something interesting during the last few entries. He'd scribbled... This is a terrifying discovery, we, before the page was ripped off. Shit. I wonder what the hell that was about. Let's go, Quinn's voice echoed across the destroyed civilization. I asked him what the plan was now, and he said, I'll pilot myself if I have to. I don't give a fuck. We gotta get out of here, man. Entry 14. We're driving back to Paradise X now. Christian and Lauren just looked disaffected now and empty and couldn't said that the plan was still on. It can't be that hard, right? He said in regards to flying. Yeah, probably not, I responded. He was obviously delusional at this point, but he seemed unstable and I didn't want to piss him off some more. At this point, I really don't know where this is going. Entry 15. It's happening. Kunz has gone out and notified everybody who wants in. The number's actually increased to 22 now, including some civilians. I asked him how the hell that we were supposed to fit. We won't, he responded. Not all of us are going to make it. They're all aware of that. And well, that's nice to think about, right? I also asked him what he told them and about not having a pilot. He said that he didn't say anything. They probably wouldn't have wanted to help if they knew this. Just say that you're the pilot, he told me. Don't worry, you don't have to actually do it if you don't want to. I'll figure it out. He said this with just such unwavering confidence. It was definitely just a facade though because I could tell that he had no hope that this was going to work. But fuck it, there's always a chance. Besides, Dusk Blue really isn't worth staying on. Make sure you use those bullets well, yeah? he said 
Every shot needs to count now. Entry 16. Fuck me. So, this is what happened. We met up with the other 22 in some shitty warehouse. Kunz introduced me as the pilot, or the savior as he put it. It was really weird, honestly. They all cheered and Kunz gave a mini motivational speech about leaving this place and finding a home worth living. This got them all riled up. However, things were looking bleak from the get-go. Amongst us, we had about um, seven total bullets. Apparently, some cops liked to smuggle weapons, but not many. We started marching through the streets towards the hangar. A bunch of civilians and other cops stared at us in melancholic curiosity as we did so. The hangar soon appeared in front of us. The problem was, there were a lot more guards than we expected. I saw everybody's collective faces drop. Afterwards, we learned that somebody had sold us out in exchange for a week's supply of meat. Yes, some fucking meat. What Kunz was never told was that the hangar was directly on the Pioneer's property. The renegade cops charged the hangar with blatant disregard for their own lives. My vision was obstructed by red mist and bodies as I stumbled around. There was no way in hell that I was running into a sea of bullets, so I started scrambling out of there. At some point during the madness, I was clotheslined by some behemoth of a man, and I blacked out soon after. I woke up after God knows how much time, and I could feel turbulence. I guess that we're actually on a plane. My chest hurts like fuck, and my legs are shackled to a wall. My weapon is gone, but the journal's still here. Great. I looked around the small space to find about six of the other cops or civilians who were with us, among them were Kunz and Lauren. I guess Christian didn't make it. I called over to Kunz though and asked him where the hell we were going and as it turns out, we were headed to some kind of prison located on an island called Ghost Hazard. He said it just so solemnly too. Everybody around here looks just so defeated and I am really tired. G'day mates, it's Bee Buster here. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the Be Scared Podcast. And please, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode too. Also, it would be much appreciated if you could share this new podcast with your friends and family and on social media too. Thanks again for listening guys, and I'll see you mates in the next one. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.